you brought your Bibles with you today, I want to encourage you to find two places in your Bible, John chapter 14 and Ephesians chapter 4, and that'll help you as you locate your place while I'm talking, John chapter 14 and Ephesians chapter 4. The title of this morning's message is Living with the Holy Spirit. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the Holy Spirit, but he is essential to the life of every Christian. We know, because the Bible teaches it, that when we trust Jesus Christ, because of his death on the cross, to forgive us for our sins, that he carried our sins away on the cross, we know that our sins are forgiven and that our destiny is heaven, but there's so much more than that. He wants to change us, to transform us, to make us new. And the Holy Spirit, he is an essential part of that process. And so if you're a Christian today, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so when we talk about living with the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about a theory or some hypothesis cooked up in some theologian's office. We're talking about a present reality that is true of you if you belong to Christ. And so in John chapter 14, uh, we have a moment in the ministry of Jesus. It is the night before, very soon, he is to be betrayed and crucified, and he is giving final instructions to his disciples. And he just told them that he's about to leave. And they are, they are rattled, they are disturbed, and they're asking questions. And Jesus has been walking with them for at least three years and has modeled for them what it looks like when someone walks with God as Father. And in that relationship, Jesus has said over and over again, the things that I'm saying, these are the things the Father's telling me to say. The, the things that I do, they are his works. And I am simply living in dependence on him. I don't do anything independently of my Father. And then he's turning to them at this moment when they are afraid. What are we going to do? How are we going to live? How are we going to know what to do? Where are we going to go? What is life about if you're leaving? Jesus is answering that question. And so in John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in thy Father and you in me, and I in you. Father, would you cause your word to become real, alive to us? And Holy Spirit, would you apply it to our minds so that we can understand it clearly and see the truth? We ask that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. In verses 18 to 20, which I was intended to read first, but in those Verses 18 to 20 says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And he has told them that I'm going to come to you. 
And so there's, there are four things that believers can expect after he leaves. And I just want you to see these things briefly. In verse 18, he's saying that after I'm gone, he said, I will come to you. Now, he just said, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm going to be gone. But at the very next phrase, he's saying, I will come to you. So every believer here can expect to have the relationship with Jesus that those disciples had with Jesus up to that point. It was never Jesus' intent to leave the earth, assemble a Bible, and for you to read that Bible and just simply do the best you can to make the best decisions you can independently of his presence in your life. When those disciples followed Jesus, he told them when to go, where to go, what to do when they got there. They simply followed him. That has not changed. A Christian is someone who is in a relationship with Christ where he comes and they follow him. He says, I will come to you. And you can expect that when he is physically absent. Verse 19, he says, Yet a little while more and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. The world won't see him. Physically he's not here, but in some way you will see him. They had seen him for three years. They knew what he looked like. They knew the sound of his voice. And he says, when I'm gone... The world won't see me, won't know me, won't recognize me, but I'm going to come to you and you're going to see me. A third thing that he's promising here, because I live, you also will live. Well, that is powerful in the sense that we know he dies and comes from the grave and because he lives, he says you will live, but I believe it's more than that. Because I live, you will live. You're going to live the kind of life that I've been living. I have taught you these three years how to live and walk with your father because I live and that's the way I have lived and I'm going to come to you and you're going to see me. You're going to live that way too. You're going to have a life, a different kind of life, a very different kind of life, but there's a life to be had. And then the fourth thing he says in verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. And that word know there means to know in your experience, in your, in your heart, in real life. You will know that there is this incredible relationship of an indwelling Christ and that, that he is also not only in you, but he has become your environment. And that, and that this whole arrangement is inside the heart of the Father. And so when he says, I'm leaving, there's this new existence, this new relationship, this new life that's going to be there. Now, how is all of this going to happen? Well, I read the verses already, but let me, let me point to them again. How does this happen? Verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. If you are a Bible student, you've studied those words, another helper. One of the things that you learn as you dig into that language is that he is saying, I'm going to, my father's going to send someone to you who is just like me. Another helper. Not a different kind of helper. 
another helper, and he's just like me. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. I'm leaving. He never leaves. This Holy Spirit, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you, and then here it is, and will be in you. See, the relationship is changing. He's been dwelling with them. Now he's going to be in them. And Jesus is explaining that this is how the world will not see him, but his followers will. This is how it's going to be possible for him to come, for them to see him, for them to know that something fundamental has changed in this relationship, to have this new life. It's all going to be possible because of the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. It's the same relationship. Jesus is Lord. He is the one. He's the master. He's to be followed. He's to be obeyed. He gives the direction. He provides everything that's needed. Same relationship, but it's going to happen in an entirely new way. A new way of doing it. So what strikes me is in verse 18, this phrase, and I, I preached a message on this last fall but it has stayed with me, this phrase, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. An orphan is someone without a parent. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you like that. You're not on your own. You don't have to figure all this out on your own. Probably uh, among Bible teachers, um, one of the better ones over the years has been a man named Dudley Hall. He tells a story how 25 years ago, he took in a young man. He and his wife, Betsy, took in a young man. And his name was Brandon. Brandon had met um, David Hall, the, the, the Hall's son, at a camp in Montana. And just a troubled young man and needed some intense discipleship and someone to help him. And, and so they took Brandon into their home for two or three years. When Brandon was a boy, his parents had separated and divorced when he was three, four years old. But as Brandon began to grow up, he looked so much like his father. And his mother could not stand his father, hated his father, that she would not let Brandon sleep in the house with the other children. They lived on a farm in Iowa, and she, she made him sleep in the barn. He was not allowed to sleep in the house. And it gets cold in Iowa. And so at night, he would get up to the heat lamps where the chickens would huddle, and he would, he would get up there for heat. He's, he's six years old, five, six, seven years old when this is happening. And it went on for several years before the abuse was discovered. And he was asked, he said, what, what went through your mind? What, what were the kinds of thoughts that you had when you were going through this experience, sleeping in the barn every night? He said, I would get up early in the morning, way before daylight, and I would just fix my gaze on the kitchen window. I could see into the window when the light came on. I could see when the, the other kids, my brothers and sisters, would come in and they would, they would eat breakfast together. And I wanted so much to be in there with them. His mother would set a bowl of oatmeal on the back step, feeding him at the same time that she fed their dogs. 
Sometimes he would sneak up to the window where he could see and peer into the, the dining area where the, the other kids were, and he would see them setting the plates out for the other kids, and he would wish that one day they would set a plate out for him. Obviously, that's a, a young man that had a lot of healing that needed to happen in his life, and it did. And he grew up, he learned that God was his father. And that meant more to him than probably to any of us. He came to understand God as his father, and that changed his life. And today he's married and he has three sons. But this illustrates what I believe goes on in the human heart. When we try to do life without God, we're like an orphan without a parent. Adam and Eve, we tell the story often enough, sinned, and they became separated from God. Before that, they walked with him. He was their father. He provided everything that they needed. He gave them all the direction they needed in life. He gave them protection. They had nothing to worry about. Everything was provided for them. And then they sinned. And when they sin, where are they? God comes back into the garden. What does Adam do? He's hiding, hiding behind a bush. And listen, that's the story of the human race. We sense and we feel, no matter what kind of father you have, but in the spiritual realm, we sense our fatherlessness and we are always trying to figure what does it take to get back in. And we have whole religions where what, what I got to do is make sacrifices, what I got to do is do works, what I got to do is, is do something in order to get back in, to be acceptable, to be received, to be loved, to be cared for. And that's embedded in every human heart, trying to prove ourselves worthy. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to leave you that way. I will not leave you as orphans without a parent. And his answer to an orphan way of life, an orphan mindset, an orphan approach to God is I'm going to send you my spirit. And in the form of my spirit, I will come to you. You will see me. You will have a different kind of life and you will know. You will know me. You will know the Father. Jesus said he would not leave us as children without fathers. Without the Father, our Heavenly Father, we tend to depend on our resources. What we have, whenever we're in trouble, whenever we have needs, we don't instinctively turn to him. We don't instinctively cry out to him. We try to figure it out. And we take on, consequently, the responsibilities that only belong to the Father. We take on responsibility for our provision. We think it's up to us to take care of us. And we work hard. We work long. We work more than we should. We overwork. We become workaholics because we're seeking to provide for ourselves. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't work, but I think we should have the mindset of being a son instead of being an orphan. The mindset of a son, especially the son of a king, is I own everything. One day I'm an heir. I'm going to inherit everything. And so whatever I need, I ask the Father, he provides it. And, and is that not what Jesus did? I don't have the money to pay a tax. They caught a fish. The tax was in the fish's mouth. Wouldn't that be cool? I don't have the food to feed 5,000 people. Father, thank you for your provision. And then there's enough to feed 5,000. I don't have a donkey to ride into Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecy. Go over there, there's going to be a donkey provided. It wasn't a fancy donkey. It wasn't even one that belonged to him. When he was done with it, he gave it back. But there was a no-frills donkey, and God provided it. 
Why? Because you and I should be like Jesus. We should have the mindset that we are heirs of the king. I don't have to hang on to stuff. I can give it away. I can share it. I don't have to cling to it, and I can trust God for the things that I need. But when we live as orphans, worry becomes part of our life, and it eats away. And we begin to blame God. Protection belongs to the Father. But we take it back from him when we live as orphans and we try to protect ourselves. And um, fear becomes part of our life. We become fearful related to our health. We become fearful related to our homes. We become fearful related to relationships. And it affects the way we act. It affects the way that we behave. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to provide your protection. Everything you need, I'm going to provide that coverage. Promotion is something that belongs to the Father. We even read about that in the Old Testament. Promotion doesn't come from the East or the West. Where does it come from? It comes from the Father. And uh, we seek to promote ourselves to get ahead because then I'll be worthy, then I'll be acceptable, then I'll be in if I can promote myself. And we become prideful of our own accomplishments. When I think of someone who had an orphan mindset, I think of the rich young ruler in the Gospels. The young man had a lot of money, a lot of wealth, but he was also very devout, and, and he was religious in his mindset. And, and the best way he knew how, he, he thought he was doing the right thing. He comes to Jesus, who's the great teacher, the great rabbi, and he says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is a typical orphan question. What do I have to do to get in? What do I have to do to be accepted? What do I have to do to be made a part of the family again and to get in there and be a part of the group? And Jesus looked at him. And the Bible says clearly that he loved him. And he said, well, you know the commandments. And Jesus listed off a few. And what Jesus was trying to do was get him to see that he could not do those things, that he could not earn his way in. He could not, he could not as an orphan get in. He can as a son, but not as an orphan. And he lists those commandments, and the, and the boy is blind. He says, I've done all these things for my youth. I've kept all this perfectly. I'm a good guy. And Jesus said, well, great. One thing you lack. He said, get rid of your self-preservation. Get rid of your self-promotion. Get rid of your self-stuff. Get rid of your things. Get rid of all your things. Just trust me. Trust me. Just believe me. Trust me. Let that be enough. Follow me. He couldn't do it. See, once you have that orphan mindset, you just do everything you can to, to control what's going on in your life, to make sure that you are in control of your relationship with God. Am I doing the right things? Am I praying the right prayers? Am I saying it the right way? Am I taking the right steps? And with that kind of mindset, we have, even as pastors, we have fallen into that trap and we have, we have tried to teach you how to manage your orphan lifestyle better than you were last week. Here's, here's five ways not to be angry anymore and, and how to manage your sin instead of how to walk with the Spirit. So Jesus is describing an entirely new way to live. There's this Holy Spirit. He's been with you. Now He's going to be in you. And what is He there to do? Make you good? Much more than changing you, He's there to bring you into this relationship with your Father. So that you can have that kind of relationship Jesus had with his father while he was here. 
And so we have this relationship as sons and daughters of the king. And the Holy Spirit is there to foster that relationship. You know, the very definition of eternal life Jesus gives in John 17, 3. He said it's knowing God. It's not living forever. It's a relationship. It's knowing God and his son whom he has sent. It's a relationship. So this morning I want you to think for just a few moments about what it takes to live with the Holy Spirit in your life. If the moment you trusted Jesus, he came in and took up residence in you, what does it take to live with the Holy Spirit in your life. I want to talk about that this week and next week. I want to make two observations, though, this morning about the Holy Spirit from the life of Jesus that I think are often overlooked. Here's the first observation. In all four Gospels, the Holy Spirit is depicted as what kind of animal? A bird. What kind of bird? A dove. In all four Gospels, he is depicted as a dove. I believe that's really significant. I think we need to ask the question, why a dove? R.D. Kendall uh, lives in Nashville, Tennessee now, goes to a church pastored by a friend. But R.T. Kendall pastored for years overseas in England at Westminster Chapel and followed a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones there as pastor. Great Bible teacher, retired now, still writes. He shares this story. A British couple were sent by their denomination to be missionaries in Israel years ago. When they got there, they got a home. And after a few weeks of living in this home, they realized a dove had come and taken up residence under the eaves of their house. And they were so excited that this dove was living under the eaves of their house. They saw it as some kind of affirmation of God on their ministry as missionaries in Israel, trying to reach Jewish people for Christ. And, and then they noticed something. They noticed that that dove was, was very sensitive, that when they would have an argument, they would yell at each other, the dove would, would leave. <laughs> when they got upset and they slammed a door in the house, the dove would leave. And, and, and the names of the two missionaries were Sandy and Bernice. Sandy was the husband and so one day Sandy said to Bernice, how do you feel about the dove? She said, it's like a seal from the Lord on our being in Israel. And then he said, but have you noticed that every time we slam a door or start shouting at each other, the dove flies away? And she said, yes, and I'm really concerned that that dove will fly away one day and not come back. The husband said, you know, either the dove adjusts to us or we adjust to the dove. And they both knew the dove was not going to adjust to them. And they mutually agreed that they would adjust to the dove, and the decision changed their lives. There is so much that we could talk about the symbolism of the Holy Spirit as a dove. Doves are different than other birds in many respects, definitely different from their cousins, the pigeons. Doves mate for life, pigeons don't. Uh, doves have this incredible sensitivity like they were describing in that story to, to brusque behavior, to noise, to anything that's distracting or disturbing to them. They just leave. And the Holy Spirit is depicted as a dove. And listen, what I want you to hear this morning is that the Holy Spirit is thousands of times more sensitive than a dove. Second observation. At Jesus' baptism, something was different 
about the way the Holy Spirit came. He came as a dove, but there's something different about what's happening there. In John chapter 1, verse 32, and John bore witness, John the Baptist, we talked about him last week. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and listen to this, and it remained on him. That's the word we use for abide. It means to stay. It remained, stayed, made its home with Jesus. I myself did not know him, John said, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. See, the, the picture of the Holy Spirit is a dove who's very sensitive and who can leave when disturbed. Here is pictured as lighting on Jesus and remaining with Jesus. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go, would temporarily come on someone or fill someone. But with Jesus, the Holy Spirit came and stayed. Why? Because Jesus never grieved the Holy Spirit. Not once. With Jesus, the Holy Spirit felt completely at home. This dove, the Holy Spirit, came into the life of Jesus. He said, I like it here. I'm going to make my home here with him. He is sensitive. I think back to the Old Testament. You say, well, Don, he's, he sounds kind of hypersensitive. You know, when we deal with people who are too sensitive, we say, hey, you need to not be so sensitive. You ever have sensitive people that come in the office, George? Yeah. I'm sure you're sensitive to them as a doctor. But, but what we look at some people, we say, oh, they're just too sensitive. They're hypersensitive. But you know, our Father is sensitive. And I believe part of that sensitivity is part of his great love for you and for me. The greatest hurt runs deepest when it's brought on you and me by those we love the most. That person closest to you has the greatest capacity to hurt you the most. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands and say, I already knew that. But, but it's true, isn't it? And, and so the Father is incredibly sensitive. And you, you don't have to look very far. You can go back to the beginning of the Scripture. You can look in the Old Testament. You can read about how the people came out of Israel and how they complained again and again and again and how the Father was ready to just shut it down. And you say, well, that seems overly sensitive. But then by the time we, we get to the end of the story, we're thinking, yeah, I'm ready to throw them under the bus too. They just complain and whine and and moan and wail. Moses, Moses sinned one time. He did what appears to be just a small thing, and God said, you can't go in the promised land. And we go, my goodness, that seems so sensitive. In Exodus 32, 33, 34, we read how when the people sinned, God was ready to, to cast them aside and start over. And Moses interceded for them, prayed for them, said, oh God, you've made promises, and, and your name is what's going to be destroyed if, if you don't keep these promises to these people. They are your people. And God says, okay, uh, you can go on to the promised land, but I will not go with you. Now, now think about this. The Holy Spirit depicted as a dove who stays when it's, it, it's welcome and then departs when there is this egregious behavior or activity that startles it and drives it away. He says, you can go, I'll keep my promise to you, but I won't go with you. And then Moses intercedes again and says, Lord, if you don't go with us, he said, we're not going. We're not going. Your presence is that important to us. Your presence is that precious to us. 
Are we that concerned about the presence of God in our daily life? Are we that concerned about the presence of God in our worship services? Recognizing his sensitivity, his care for us, and that we would not take that lightly or take it for granted. I want to be clear about this. The Holy Spirit never leaves us. You heard me say that. He never leaves us. Jesus said, I'm going to give you a comforter. He will be with you forever. Those are the words of Christ back in verse 16 when we read it. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. But I believe that the illustration of the Holy Spirit as a dove is given in the Scripture for a purpose. He stays and he leaves or flies away. And that illustration is important. The Holy Spirit is just as sensitive as a dove, thousands of times more sensitive. He does not leave us when we grieve him And yet we read in Scripture he can be resisted, Acts 7. We read in Scripture that he can be quenched, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. It says don't put the Spirit's fire out, don't quench it. And in the context he's saying that there are times when the Spirit wants you to speak and you say, I'm not going to speak. That's quenching the Spirit, something he wants you to say and you're not going to say it. Quenching the Spirit. And so we know that in this relationship with the Holy Spirit, there are things that we can do. He can be lied to. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, lied to the Holy Spirit. And the Bible also makes it clear that you and I were made to walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5, to be filled with the Spirit, and we'll talk about that next week, and that the Holy Spirit, the intent is that we would have this relationship with Him where it is a moment-by-moment, step-by-step relationship with God through His Holy Spirit. We're to walk in the Spirit. But we are told to walk in the Spirit. We are told to be filled with the Spirit, which means what? It means we don't have to. It means I can, live in my, I can live my life like an orphan. I can live my life as if I don't have a father. I can live my life in such a way that I don't walk or keep in step with the Spirit. I can live my life in a way that I'm definitely not filled with the Spirit. So when the dove flies away, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that we can live like an orphan. The Holy Spirit can and he will step back and say, have it your way. And when that happens, we have a loss of of awareness or sense of his presence. And so our relationship is affected, our fellowship is affected with him. No peace. You know, we're told in Scripture to let the peace of God rule in our hearts. As a congregation and as individuals, we're supposed to let the peace of God rule. When my heart's not at peace, the Holy Spirit's speaking to me. But when the Holy Spirit steps back, I'm not even on the, on the peace radar screen. There's just no peace. A loss of sense of his presence. A loss of knowing what to do next. I lose my sense of direction. A loss of effectiveness. There's just no power. Nothing seems to go right. Nothing works. Nothing seems to, to change because I'm not, I'm not in sync with him. I'm not in step with him. I'm not doing what he's told me to do. And he empowers everything he tells you and me to do. So here's what I believe we need to understand. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. I think this is a critical passage for us this morning as individuals and as a church. And here's what Paul writes. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now in context, he's talking about misbehavior of Christians. Things that we are doing that we shouldn't be doing. In that context, he says, 
Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit's with you. Jesus said he's given him to you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is there forever. But it does not follow that he will always be in you, indwelling you, ungrieved. We can grieve him. The word grieve means to cause pain or sorrow. Paul uses the very same word to describe the kind of grief when you lose someone to death. We don't grieve as other people who have no hope. He uses that same word to describe it. And so it means to cause pain or sorrow. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. We're in a relationship with a very sensitive person. And so grieving the Holy Spirit is probably the easiest thing for you and me to do. When I get careless not paying attention, not being sensitive to him, typically I'll be insensitive to him. And and how do I do that? What does that look like? Well, verse 31, the very next verse describes it, Ephesians 4, 31. Some things we do and things we don't do that cause pain to the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Let it be put away. This is passive. What does that mean? I believe it's what the Holy Spirit wants to get out of my heart. He wants to get these things out of my life, out of my heart. This is trash. This is toxic to my heart, toxic to my spiritual relationship, to God and to his people. I need to get the garbage out of my life. And he wants to take it out. And then he says positively, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive you? Completely. He didn't forgive 99 of your sins and hold one back just in case. He forgives everything. He cancels the debt. He doesn't hold anything against you and me. Now there may be consequences to that when he forgives us. I may have done something stupid and hurt myself or hurt somebody else. That may not go away. But he does forgive my, my sin. Be kind to one, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Where do you think the Holy Spirit wants to take your heart in a relationship with other people? Do you think he wants you to be kind? Do you think he wants you to be tenderhearted? Do you think he wants to produce that in your life, in your heart? So here we have this picture. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He is the instrument of change. He is the one who communicates the presence of God to your life. He is the one who takes what you're saying, communicates it to God, takes what God is saying and communicates it to your heart. He is precious. He is vital to your life, to your walk. Let's just take that first word, bitterness. It's a toxic word. It means resentment, anger, annoyance, being irritable, even impatience. It can be sudden. You can go from zero to 90 in two seconds. You were calm, happy, at peace, and suddenly the dove flies away. It can happen when you're driving. I know it can happen when I'm driving. I could have had a great time alone with God that morning, get in the car to drive somewhere. Somebody acts inappropriately in front of me because I think I need to correct that person. I may get upset. Oh, that person, they shouldn't have done that. They are blank, blah, that's terrible. The dove flew away. You're at home, you're talking to your spouse, you're discussing a problem, 
and suddenly it's not about the problem, suddenly it gets personal. You have words. Somebody says something they shouldn't say. Feelings are hurt. The dove flies away. One of our deacons was sharing in our deacons meeting this morning about uh, a public event they were at that involved a lot of Christians last night. And, and as the cars were lined up in the parking lot to leave the parking lot, um, an argument broke out between two drivers. People were getting out of the car, yelling at each other, taking pictures of license plates, taking pictures of each other. I guess to document something. And then somebody said something to a person in the car behind them and the third person got out of their car. And this was at a, at a Christian event. The dove flew away. The dove flew away. You're in a hurry at the supermarket. You're in line. You got to get somewhere. Uh, it's important to you. Someone in front of you is not moving fast enough. You stand there. You go, I know nobody's ever done that. Just to let them know that you're not happy with the situation, that they're not moving fast enough, and guess what? The dove flew away. You may not have realized it, but you just startled the dove, and the dove flew away. He will not adjust to any of us. We must adjust to him. I believe one of the, the greatest steps that you and I can take in our walk with God is to come to a place where I realize that confessing my sin and dealing with my bad behavior in my life is not just about keeping a clean record chart. It's not about, you know, ticks and tacks and, and a scorecard. It's about a relationship. And to be able to Shut yourself off alone with the Lord and get on your face before him, get on your knees before him and just say, oh God, I just know that, that my relationship with you is not what it ought to be and I know that I have grieved you. God, how have I grieved you? You don't have to make up stuff. You don't have to sit down and make up an imaginary list. The Holy Spirit will bring to your mind that moment or those moments when you grieved him. And the good news is he's ready to forgive you immediately. The Holy Spirit, as sensitive as he is, does not hold a grudge. And he is ready to wipe the slate clean. And you can walk with him again, trusting him for your provision, trusting him for your protection, trusting him for your promotion. You don't have to live like an orphan. You have a father. You have a father who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, and who sent his spirit to live in you. You're not alone.